The title of this morning's message, Bildad Speaks His Mind. Bildad Speaks His Mind. Uh, Eliphaz, as you remember from last time we were in this book, uh, he, is, he believes the situation that Job is in, he's got it all figured out. He's observed the situation for seven days, uh, and those hearing, after hearing Job's comments, what Job had to say, he is sure that Job is suffering because of some secret sin. He's convinced of it. Uh, we've seen Job respond to those comments in verses six, uh, chapter 6 and 7. Uh, he gives an impassioned defense against Eliphaz for the charges that he's placed against him. And in that defense, what he says is, although he knew that he was a sinner, he knows that. He's not denying that. What he is saying is there is no secret sin, no unconfessed sin in his life that's causing this trial. And so in spite of the passion and the emotion of his words, Eliphaz does not change, uh, Job does not change Eliphaz's mind in the least. Eliphaz is still convinced it's because of sin. And so Eliphaz and Job go to neutral corners, and now the second of Job's friends is ready to speak uh, about the situation. This is his friend, in quotes, Bildad. Now, Bildad has sat quietly, watched this exchange go on between Job and Eliphaz. He's watched this conversation deteriorate as both Eliphaz and Job level uh, accusations at each other. And certainly the strain of the seven days prior to that uh, that's been filled with so much emotion and so much difficulty has begun to show. Now, remember again, Eliphaz's presentation, he was tactful. He used words of piety, even though he did very little to disguise his true thoughts about Job, that he was harboring some sin in his life. At least he tried to couch it in more uh, comfortable words. Bildad apparently did not go to the same school that uh, that Eliphaz did. Uh, Therefore, he didn't learn how to present himself tactfully and with, with his kindness and so forth. He also sees no need to play, play it soft with Job. He sees no need, no need to play games. So when he decided to speak up, he came out with gloves off and no desire to pull any verbal punch. Again, with friends like this, who needs enemies? These guys are supposedly Job's friends, but nothing they've done so far has shown any friendship toward him whatsoever. Now, Eliphaz's presentation begins in chapter 8. I want you to look there this morning, if you would. In verses 1 through 7, we see the attack on Job, Bildad's attack on Job. I'll look at verses 1 and 2 again, if you would. It says, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now, not hard to understand. If I'm going to put this into our words of the day, here is what he is saying. Job, you are full of hot air. You're full of wind. You're just talking and talking and not saying anything. How long are you going to keep this thing up? How long are you going to keep up this game you're playing as though you have no stake in this thing whatsoever? And then Bildad gets to his basic premise, which is the exact same premise that Eliphaz came up with. He also believes that Job is being punished because of some secret sin. And he believed that Job and his family got exactly what they deserved. And he begins his argument by expressing that truth found in verse 3. Look at what he says there. He says, Doth God pervert judgment? Or doth the Almighty pervert a justice? Now, the answers to those questions are obvious. God does not pervert justice. God does not pervert judgment. So that is true, a true statement made by Bildad. But it has no bearing whatsoever on what the presentation is and what is going on in Job's situation. Bildad's reasoning is as flawed as Eliphaz's was. His premise is correct, but just like Eliphaz, uh, his conclusion is all wrong. God is just. We know that. We know that from the first two chapters of the book of Job, Job is not a sinful man. That is made very clear to us. Therefore, Job is not getting what he deserves. So again, Bildad has a solid foundation. What he is saying is confirmed by other places in the scripture. The problem is he takes that foundation and proceeds to build a crooked house on that foundation. Now, I want to stop here, though, because there is a glorious truth here that I want to make known to you this morning. It's very, very important for you to hear. 
as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are built on a solid foundation. The verse upon which we are built, where God built his church, is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Your foundation, the foundation of your salvation, the foundation of your life, and the foundation of your future is found in that one who is unchangeable, Jesus Christ. Amen. And there is simply no other foundation that is any better to build on than that foundation. Now, as you talk to those in the world, as you rub shoulders with them, uh, they see themselves as built on a firm foundation as well. But whatever they've laid as their foundation, it has one serious flaw. It will not stand the test of time, and it will not stand the test of eternity. It may last for a while, but eventually a foundation that is not built on Jesus Christ will fail. Jesus Christ spoke of this very clearly in the book of Matthew. He spoke of the foolish man building on the sand. If you have done any building at all, you are aware that building on sand is a lousy foundation. The structure looks good. It may be a classy structure, but eventually it's going to fall. It may be sturdy at the outset, but sooner or later, that sand is going to shift, and eventually that building is going to come down. The person who builds their life on anything that has its source in the world will eventually fall here, and it certainly will fall in eternity. However, in the same way, just as Bildad does here, it's possible to have a solid foundation, but build a shaky house on that foundation. It's possible for a believer to build a worthless structure on a great foundation that God has given to them. Uh, here's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I'm sure you know these verses well. Paul says here, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. What you are doing here today, folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, what you are doing here today is building on the foundation God has given to you. You are building some structure on that foundation. It's possible to build that structure using gold or silver or precious stones. It's also possible to build that structure using wood or hay or stubble. And it's all involved with the quality of work you do for Jesus Christ and the heart attitude you have when you do it as you do his work for him. That determines the kind of structure you're going to build on that foundation. And you are well aware that buildings of wood and hay and stubble are not going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be burned in the fiery judgment of that day. So if your work is done for any other reason than because you love Jesus Christ, at some point in time, that building is going to fall. That work is going to be destroyed by the fire God puts it through. You have a great foundation this morning. Your foundation is Jesus Christ himself. But that foundation makes no difference whatsoever as far as our work is concerned if we don't build wisely on that foundation. And by the way, that is completely in your control. As a believer, you can build however you want with whatever you want. It's in your control. Amen. So like many believers, Bildad had a problem. His problem was not his foundation. His problem was what he built on that foundation and the building that he built was faulty. His reasoning will not stand, even though he is built on that solid foundation. You see, Bildad makes a mistake that many believers make. We've talked about this before. He came out armed with truth, solid truth. He set out to help another believer in time of need. But instead of providing help for that believer, instead of providing comfort, they, he slugged Joe Square in the gut with the truth that he has and takes the wind out of him as a result. We will not help anybody going through a difficulty if take the truth God has given to us and beat people over the head with it. Amen. It's not going to help them. Instead, we come with kindness and with caring and present that truth in a way that is helpful and not harmful. 
Now, look at verse 4. Bildad has presented the truth in verse 3 that nobody can argue with. But in verse 4, here we go. If thy children have sinned against him, and he hath cast them away for their transgression, if thou would seek unto God betimes, and make the supplicate, thy supplication to the Almighty. What he says in verse 4 is this. Even though you think you're a perfect man, even though you think there's no sin inside you, Bildad has sat there for days and days and watched Job's misery. He has this opportunity to speak, and what he says is, your kids have suffered because of what they did. It's their own sin that caused that. The devil influences Bildad to speak, and he tells Job he's full of hot air, and the deaths of his ten children were exactly what they deserved for their sin. Now, Bildad has no idea whatsoever what that sin was. He couldn't tell him if he asked. But he is convinced that was the reason why all this happened to Job. He knows God is just, Bildad does. He doesn't believe God will allow anything into a person's life unless they deserved it, and therefore Job and his children must have deserved what God did to them. He takes the truth, and builds a faulty building on that truth. Now, like many of the charismatic preachers today, uh, here's what Bildad believes. He believes that the only reason bad things happen to people, the only thing, reason bad things enter into a person's life is because of a lack of faith or, a lack, or because of sin. One or the other. That's what the preacher teaches. It, so it follows in Bildad's mind that Job's children must have sinned. Their deaths had to be the result of that sin that existed in their lives. Again, Bildad believes that's the problem. And because Bildad fancies himself as a good counselor, he's got a solution for Job's problem. Again, look at verse 5. If thou would seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee, and make thy habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase." Now, he tells Job, here's what you need to do, Job. You need to seek unto God betimes. That word betimes is a great old English word that means early. And so what he says is, Job, you're not praying. And you need to seek God early. You need to seek God right away and make your supplication to the Almighty. Now, here's an interesting thing. Bildad's right. Bildad's right. As you read through these first chapters of the book of Job, you won't find any place where Job is praying about this difficulty he's in. You don't see him praying anywhere about it. He says, Job, turn to God and talk to God about this trial. We have no record anywhere, no indication at all, where Job has yet done that. We've heard him call out to God, asking him to end the trial, asking him to end his life. We've heard all of that. We have not heard Job seek God's guidance and comfort and protection in this trial. Now, what it would seem like, if Job was a righteous person, which he is, the first thing Job would have done is to pray to God about this difficulty. However, we're going to cut Job some slack, because sometimes when we're hit with something that is overwhelming to us, it affects our judgment, and we neglect to do the very thing that would do the most good. If Bildad really wanted to help, here's what he could have said. Job, we've been sitting here for seven days trying to figure out why this happened to you, what God's purpose is in all of this. And yet in all that time, none of us has sought God's face in prayer. Maybe it's about time we prayed about this thing. Maybe it's about time we ask God to show us what he wants to accomplish in all this that's going on in your life. I can't begin to imagine, Job, what you're going through. I have no idea why God is allowing this to happen. But I can pray for you, and I can pray with you. That's what he should have said. That's what he didn't say. Job, why don't we pray right now and seek God's face in this time of trial? Folks, I want to tell you something. 
Some of the best help you can give to somebody who's going through a difficulty, some of the greatest comfort you can give to somebody who's going through a trial is to pray with them and pray for them in that time of trial. When a person's going through a trial, sometimes the most difficult thing to do is to pray. You see, they don't feel very close to God. They feel like God has pulled himself away from them. It's not as like it was when they were in the good times. And therefore, praying is a difficult thing for them to do. But we can pray with them, and we can pray for them, and we can call them and pray with them over the phone. We can get together with them, pull them aside at the church somewhere, and have a word of prayer with them. We can always do that. More than once I've been aware of somebody in this church who becomes aware of a need of somebody else. And they pray with them right there and then at that moment to help them gain the help that they need during that time of difficulty. That is the body of Christ operating like it should operate. That's what we ought to be doing. That's the body of Christ doing what God has called us to do. One thing every saved person can do when somebody is struggling is pray for them and pray with them. The place to turn, as Bildad says, he's exactly right. The place to turn in time of trial is to the Almighty. And prayer is a channel that God has given to us to do that. And prayer activates God's comfort. It activates God's blessing for ourselves and also for those who are going through a trial. So what Bildad says is right. That's what he should have done for Job. He should be praying for Job. But instead of praying in verses 6 and 7, what he does instead is continue to point fingers at Job and tell him he's the reason for the problem. Rather than do something that would help, he just keeps blaming Job for the difficulty. He accuses Job of not being right and not being pure and not being upright. He claims that God couldn't answer any prayer that Job put together until he got his heart right with the Lord and then he could pray. And if Job would just get right, Bildad says, then God would make him prosperous again and God would make him whole again and put him back on the right track again. Folks, there you see it again. Nothing new under the sun. If you watch TV preachers, I don't know why you would, but if you do, you'll watch them and you'll hear them say the exact same thing that Bildad is saying. Just get right with God, just name it and claim it, and God will give you whatever you want. You've heard that over and over, folks. That's not Bible, but that's what they teach, and that's exactly what Bildad is saying. Just get right with God and claim it, and God will give you what you need. The problem with that teaching is this, folks. There are many believers who are right with God, and yet God does not bless them with great material blessings. It doesn't always happen that way because that's not scripture. And there's not one verse of scripture that says that spirituality is gauged by material wealth. You'll hear that, but that's not Bible. Just because somebody has a lot does not mean God is blessing them. And just because a person has little does not mean they're not spiritual. It doesn't work that way. That's not what the Bible teaches. One more faulty structure the build that puts on a good foundation. And it continues on until this very day you'll hear the same thing. So there's his attack on Job. Now we want to look at Bildad's appeal to the fathers. Bildad's appeal to the fathers. Look at verse 8. He says, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? Now that we've established a time period of the book of Job, this happened right before the flood. So what Bildad's referring to is the age before the flood. I'm sorry, it happened right after the flood. This is the age before the flood that he's referring to. And so the fathers he's talking about here are probably the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Bildad is encouraging Job to examine the record. God knows how to deal with hypocrites. And that is what the flood was all about. Those who had the appearance of good, but whose imaginations, the Bible tell us, were evil. 
And what Bildad is saying in all this, which is something Job already knows, Bildad is saying, Job, you can't get away with your sin. God judges sin. He says, if God judged the nations with a flood because of their sin, why, Job, do you think that you can get away with your sin? Again, Bildad is convinced that Job is obviously under the judgment of God because of some sin. And because of that, uh, he's got to confess that sin in order to stop God from doing what he's doing. Look at verse 10. Again, shall shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water? A build that again is speaking here of the oral tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation during that time. Since there was no written word of God at this time, God's truth was passed down orally uh, from person to person to the prophets and through others. Now, I stop here for a moment and I thank God that God has given to me a book. I praise God I've got this book before me this morning, the written word of God that reveals his truth to me. I don't have to depend upon hearing that by word of mouth from someone from some past generation. I've got this book available to me in my language, in sixth grade English, preserved for me, and I can get into this book any time that I want to. That is a great blessing, folks. I hope you realize the blessing of having the word of God, because ages before us did not have this book. God has given it to us. Look at verse 12. Whilst it is yet in his uh, greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. Uh, Bildad states here that if a person rejects truth that's passed down to them, they're going to wither up and they're going to die. Now, again, Bildad is wrong about a whole lot of things. But every so often he says something that is true, that is right on, that is uh, supported by other places in the Scripture. What he says here is, if you don't hear the word of God, Job, you're going to wither up and you're going to die. And Bildad might be wrong by other things. He's not wrong about that one. That is true of Job. And listen to me, that is true of every person in this room, if you know Jesus Christ. If you know him, if you neglect the word of God, if you neglect the truth of the word of God, if you refuse to make that book a daily part of your life, and by the way, I said a daily part, not a weekly or a monthly or just when you're in church. I said every day, if you don't make that book a part of your life, you're going to wither up and die like a plant with no water. And believers wonder sometimes why they struggle in life and they never open the book. They wonder why they don't know what God is doing and they never open the book. They wonder why they don't understand the the difficulty they're going through, but they never get into the word of God and allow God to help them and show them and strengthen them through the power of that book. There is power in that book, folks. There's power in the word of God. That book can do what nothing else in your life can do. And I will tell you something, and I say this with no apology whatsoever. A believer who is not in the word of God is no use to God whatsoever. He can't use a believer who's not into that book. He simply can't. Because you won't have what you need to do the work that he's called you to do. And by the way, if you're not in that book, your life will have no impact on anybody around you. You may have a Minimal impact because of what you're able to do in your own flesh. You won't have the impact God wants you to have because you're not in the word of God, getting what God needs for you to get, and getting the water from God's word to make you strong enough to do what he wants you to do. And again, I don't apologize for any of that. That book is your lifeline. It's my lifeline. If you want to be used by God, you better get into the book. You better get into the book. What a great time to determine as the new year starts to read through the word of God. What a great goal that would be for this 2024. So, Job was aware of that. Job doesn't debate that point. He might disagree with much of what Bildad says, but he's not denying his need for the truth of the word of God. It is a wise believer who realizes how much they need that book. A wise believer realizes that. 
And then we see in verses 13 through 18, the application to the Antichrist. The application to the Antichrist. Now, we mentioned to you when we first started this study, uh, this book has several different applications. One of the applications that it has is prophetic. It tells us about the time that is to come after the church leaves this earth in the rapture. tells us about the time of the Great Tribulation. So historically, these, these words that Bildad is speaking to Job are intended to uh, address Job directly. He's making the point that what's happened to Job and to his children was the right thing because of their sin. They had sinned, and God judged them for it. Look at verse 13. He says, So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrites' hope shall perish. Now, he's talking about Job there. That's his address to Job. He's talking about Job being somebody who forgot God. He's talking about Job being a hypocrite, and therefore God is punishing him because of that. However, that is a true statement for anybody who does not follow God's direction. It doesn't apply to Job because Job was following God. But for anybody who doesn't follow God's direction, that's going to happen to them. They're going to be consumed and perish because of their lack of willingness to follow what God's called them to do. It doesn't apply to Job. However, there is a prophetic application here that goes beyond Job and his calamity. Because the ultimate hypocrite, the classic hypocrite, you'll not see him directly, but you'll know about him, is the Antichrist. He is the classic hypocrite. He is the one who's going to look so much like the real Christ when he comes onto the scene. He is going to deceive the entire world. They're all going to think he's Jesus Christ. And they're all going to think he's the Messiah. But he's not the real Christ. He is an imposter. He's going to appear as somebody who is what he really is not. And because he is against God and because he is against all that God stands for, like every other sinner, eventually the Antichrist will die without hope. Look at verse 14. Whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be as a spider's web. That verse says that at some point in time, the Antichrist and all those who don't follow God are going to have their hope cut off. Now, I want you to think about that for a second, folks. Just, set, just, just pull aside here for a moment. Think about living life with no hope. Think about living life every day and having no hope whatsoever that there's any purpose to it, any goal to it, that any good thing is truly going to happen. Just living life and throwing it out there like a lottery and just see what happens. Can you imagine living this life and having no hope to hold on to whatsoever? No hope whatsoever. Can you imagine going through a trial and having no hope that there's a plan behind it, that there's a reason for it? I don't like what God puts me through sometimes. I'll be very honest with you about that. But I thank God whatever he puts me through, he has a reason for it. Those in the world have no idea about that. They have no clue whatsoever. That lost person has no idea why, God, why they're going through what they're going through because in the lost person's uh, life, there is no purpose to it. God's not behind it. Before we just knew Jesus Christ as our Savior, that's where we were. We had no hope whatsoever. There are people living in this world today without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. They have absolutely no hope. No hope. That's why we see them holding on so tightly to the things of the world. That's why we see them celebrating the things of the world and so desperately defending values that are of the culture, even though it's so obvious they go against all reason and against nature itself. They hold on to all those things. Listen to me. That's all they have. That's all they've got. If they lose that, they've got nothing. That's their only hope. You see, folks, that's why it is our responsibility to tell them there is a hope that lasts. There's a real hope. And it's found in Jesus Christ. There is a secure hope. There is a thing that a hope that will take them through whatever they go through. And it will not change because, you see, that our hope is not in things that change. Our hope is in a person who never changes. Jesus Christ. 
Every person without Jesus Christ, even the coming Antichrist, will live and die with no hope. Because, you see, the real hope is found only in Jesus Christ, and it's found nowhere else. If you're listening today and have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are living and you will die without hope. But you can fix all that. You can change that today. We'll give you an opportunity to do that in just a few moments. Look at verse 15. Bildad has more words for Job. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. Look at that. He says because Job was a sinner and because Job refuses to confess that sin, his house will not endure. What he is saying is you will have no posterity. Your descendants are going to be cut off. No matter what you do, there will be no way to avoid God's judgment upon your life because of that sin in your life. Now, again, true statements, if that were the case with Job, it is simply not the case with Job. And then look at verses 16 and 17. It says that he is green before the sun and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped around the heap and seeth the place of stones. Bildad begins to speak here of green trees and dry branches. In these verses, Job, Bildad moves on from talking about just Job and referencing him. Prophetically, Bildad is now speaking about the coming Antichrist. Now, let's talk about in reference to Job first. Uh, we see here what's going on as far as spiritual warfare. There's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in Job's life right now. Satan has influenced the thinking of Job's three friends, so that they are now being used as instruments of the devil to push Job over the edge. And Satan has gotten into that thing and made that happen. He talked, the verse talks there about hope that would be cut off. Uh, that is speaking of the fact that they would incite Job to curse God and tell God that he's done with him because of what he's brought into his life. Now, I believe this. I believe Job's friends were operating out of the goodness of their hearts. I think they meant well, even though it doesn't sound like it. I believe their intent was right. They are armed with God's truth, and they're pushing forward in this attempt to get Job to see the error of his ways. The problem is they are totally unaware of the spiritual warfare that's waging around them, and the fact they are being used in that warfare to attack Job. They are unaware that Satan has influenced their minds and used them to, against God's servant to discourage him and take him down. And yet God takes those words that they speak that Satan wants to use to destroy and, and destroy Job. And instead, God uses those same words and paints a picture for us of things that are to come, prophetic things. What an amazing book you have before you. Amen. God can take those words that this guy is speaking that are totally off base and use them to reveal truth to us about what's coming in the years ahead. Now, notice Bildad uses this picture of a green tree or a sapling. He uses that picture to represent the hypocrite those whose roots are, are put in a precarious place. This picture is used in other places in Scripture, again, to represent the Antichrist. I want to read you a few verses here if I could. Listen to Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. David uses the same picture to represent evil workers, where he says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Very similar to what Bildad is saying here. Ezekiel uses the same image. He prophesies the eventual defeat of the Antichrist and the victory of Jesus Christ over him. Ezekiel 17:24. And all the, green, uh, all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Now, he's talking about a high tree and a low tree. That high tree that is brought down is the Antichrist. The low tree that is exalted is a prophecy of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. 
You're aware that throughout Scripture, Jesus Christ is referred to in the Old Testament as the branch. Isaiah 4.2, for example, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. That branch, Jesus Christ, is exalted and he flourishes. That branch produces fruit, and the fruit of that branch is a remnant that escapes from the terrors of the tribulation because they obey God and live to serve the Lord during that time. So this flourishing branch that he talks about is set in direct contrast to the Antichrist represented by this green branch, the green tree that's going to dry up under God's judgment. Now, here's how it's going to work. That green tree is going to flourish for a time. When he comes onto the scene, he's going to bring peace and prosperity, and the people are going to love him, and the people are going to follow him. And they'll abide by the things he says and the things that he tells them to do, because everything he does is magic. It all works. But there comes a day when God is going to end that flourishing. He's going to be judged as the Bible prophesies. So again, what Bildad says to Job is, even though he's speaking to Job, the words that God uses go beyond Job's situation and give us a picture of the end times uh, and what will happen during that time. Look at verse 17. Again, it says his roots are wrapped around uh, the, I'm sorry, let's start over. His roots are wrapped about the heap and seeth the place of stones. If he destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Here, Bildad speaks of strange stones and places of perdition. Strange stones and places of perdition. Now, I want to ask you a question that answer to yourself. What in the world is this place of stones that Bildad refers to? Or maybe the question should be better said, what out of this world is the place of stones that Bildad refers to? I'm going to start this way when we talk about this. Uh, We need to be very careful sometimes as we walk into areas of God's word. God reveals very much to us in this book, but it doesn't take me long, and I'm assuming it's true of you as well, uh, to get buried in this book if you're not careful. (laughs) That book can put me underwater, put me go way over my head when God begins to reveal some of this truth that is in the word of God. And so there's some things we need to consider uh, very carefully, and they come clear to us only as we ponder them and think about them and meditate upon them and seek God's spirit to reveal truth to us. I believe what we're looking at here this morning is one of those places. And so I'm going to take this last Sunday in in December, what we call letdown Sunday, because the holidays are all done and you're all sort of deflated and doing, I'm going to use this time this morning to kind of do some study of the Word of God. I'm going to do a little Bible study for a few minutes this morning. I want to look and see what these place of stones may be all about. So we're going to go deeper this morning. Put your snorkels on, and we're going to go down a little deeper this morning and see what God has to say to us. I've got some places I'd like you to turn uh, look at Job 28.3. This place of stones that is talked about is talked about many places in the Word of God. I want to look at just a few of them this morning and see if we can put all this together and see what this place of stones may be. Now, I want to say to you also, I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying this is just the right interpretation. I'm giving you some things to think about, ponder, and maybe study out further for yourself. Job 28.3. The Bible says, He setteth an end to darkness and searcheth out all perfection the stones of darkness, and the shadow of death. Now look there, the stones of darkness are connected to the shadow of death. We saw earlier in in this book that that was a tribulation reference. In Job 41.30, they're mentioned again. It says, their sharp stones are under him. He spread the sharp pointed things upon the mire. Here we have those sharp stones again, and this time they're connected to the devil himself. That's what Job 41 is a reference to. Now take your Bible, if you would, and go to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. In Isaiah chapter 34, we have an Old Testament picture of hell. 
And this is a, a visual of what hell is like. This is not the actual place of hell, but rather it's a picture for us of what hell is going to be like for those who, don't, who die without Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 34, look at verse 9. Isaiah 34, 9. It says there, And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl also, and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion, watch it, and the stones of emptiness. So here we have these stones referenced now to the place of hell, that place where God will send those who choose not to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, go to the book of Ezekiel, if you would. One more place. Ezekiel chapter 28. One more reference to these stones, this place of stones that Bildad refers to here. Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at verse 11, if you would. Now, we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago. This passage is, is uh, historically in reference to the king of Tyre. But clearly, as you read through it, you'll find he's not speaking directly to the king of Tyre. He's actually giving us a picture of the devil himself and speaking about Satan. So here we find out what Satan was like before he fell. And look at the fact that these stones show up again as Ezekiel talks about the devil. Watch it now. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon this king of Tyrus. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed chair that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. There's the stones again. What do we know about them? Well, from what we all read just now, these verses we just read, we know these stones of fire, these stones, this place of stones, is connected to the tribulation. It's connected to the Antichrist. It's connected to hell. And it's connected with the devil. Now, go back to Job 8, if you would, and look at verse 17 again. It says there, his roots are wrapped about the heap and seeth the place of stones. If thou destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. Notice this place of stones is made reference to his place. Now, again, it's talking prophetically about the Antichrist. And it's talking about his place, the place of the Antichrist. Now, I want to take you back in your memory to the New Testament. The disciples are in the upper room. Uh, Judas has, has killed himself, and therefore he's gone, and need a replacement for Judas, a new disciple, to take Judas's place. Acts one twenty five. here's what Peter says. He says, Peter, that Peter says that Judas died, and where did he go? He went to his own place. A very similar reference to what we see here in Job chapter 8, verse 16 to 17. Judas went to his own place. In other words, there was a special place reserved for Judas in hell, uh, this one who was the devil, allowed the devil to possess him, this one who attempted to overthrow Jesus Christ, uh, he had his own place when God sent him to hell. Just like the Antichrist, well, apparently, from what we see here in Job chapter 8. So, the same, we find actually in Scripture, the same phrase is used to describe both the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot. Very interesting. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, in John chapter 7, verse 12, 17, verse 12, the 
Antichrist and Judas are both called the son of perdition. The same title given to both these fellows, the Antichrist and Judas. So they're very closely tied together, both being called the sons of perdition. And both apparently have a special place in hell from Acts and also from here in the book of Job. So here's what I wonder. And again, this is just a theory. You can reject all this if you like to. I just wonder if these stones that are talked about here that are called his place, I wonder if that is Judas's place in hell. I wonder if this place of stones is the same as Judas's own place. I wonder if it's possible that Judas Iscariot is being held in a special place, ready to be reactivated by the devil at the time of the tribulation. And if that's the case, then Judas is being held for a special time, the tribulation time, and Judas is going to return to this earth again. And when that occurs, one more time now, under the guise of the Antichrist, Judas is going to attempt to overthrow the Lord Jesus Christ one more time, like he did before Jesus Christ died. Very possible that Judas and the Antichrist are very much tied together and have this connection. And in fact, Judas will be, the, rather the Antichrist will be Judas incarnate, with the devil living inside him again, just like he was before he tempted the Lord, and rather betrayed the Lord, and was put to his own place. I'm going to stop there. You can give more thought to that. Uh, I do that for a number of reasons, hopefully just to get us thinking. But, folks, I also want to say this to you one more time if I could. God has given you an amazing book. Amen. Amazing book. In just ten minutes here, five minutes, whatever it was, we went through some scripture and connected some things that may actually be what God's going to do when the tribulation shows up. And if you connect those dots together, sometimes you find great truth from them. That is an amazing book God has given to you. Listen to me. That book is like no other book on earth. And as we start this new year, folks, I want to say something to you. I don't know what you plan on reading this year, if you do any reading. But I would hope you would not put any book over this book. I would hope before you do anything else, as far as your reading goes, you read this book first. This This scripture writing we're doing, what a great way that is to get the word of God in your mind. That's why we're doing it. It's a way for you to get the Word of God in your heart. You need that. I don't know what 2024 is going to bring. I'm no prophet. I know this. It's going to be worse than last year. (laughs) It's not going to get better. And if it's not going to get better, you better be ready for it as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the way to get ready for that is get into the book. Get into the book. God has given it to you. He's preserved it for you. He's written it so you can understand it. Get into the Word of God and study what God has to say to you. You'll need it before this year is over. I guarantee you. Because you know what? You needed it last year. Now, whether you got into it or not, that was up to you. But if you didn't get into it, you needed it. You just didn't have it when you needed it. Get into the Word of God. That is an amazing book. That book reveals things to us that no human book on earth is going to reveal to us. God gave you that for that very purpose. And I hope maybe just by going through what we went through here for a few minutes, it gives you a new appreciation for that book. Maybe it will also help us get studying the Word of God a little more. God, the God of the universe has breathed that book for you. He wants you to hear what he has to say. Amen. And you will never hear what God has to say unless you invest your time in what the word of God says. All right, we're going to close. Look at verse 19. Job eight nineteen. Job's argument against Job. I'm sorry, Bildad's argument to Job. Bildad's argument to Job. Verse 19. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers, till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. They that hate thee shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. 
Here is the old, tired premise that Bildad is spewing out to Job. Do good, and God will bless you. Do good, and God will show favor to you. And this illustrates to us the basic problem that every believer experiences at some time in their lives. You know what most of us do? I'm going to say what all of us do from time to time. We, we misunderstand the meaning of the word blessing. We misunderstand that word. When I say the blessing of the Lord, what you think about is prosperity and good health and smart kids and no problems and a life that goes on seamlessly with no difficulty. That's what we think about when we think of God's blessing. And when something occurs in our life outside of that, when it's not prosperity or good health or some difficulty arises, we say that, we are, that God is not blessing us. And when we have prosperity and good health and no problems, we say that's the blessing of God. You know what, folks? That is not the biblical definition of blessing in the Word of God. In the Bible, blessing is defined as the benefits that come from God working in our lives to teach us faith and patience and to bring about inside us a new spiritual growth. And whether we like it or not, I don't like it. Whether we like it or not, we typically don't learn those things in the good times. Be nice if we did. We're not built that way. We learn about those things during the time of trial and the time of testing. Hold your hand there, Job. I'm going to have you turn to one more place this morning. Go to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about this. I think we need to see it this morning as we wrap this up. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 3. And watch what Paul says. Watch every word here, folks. Every word is important in the word of God. Romans 5, 3. And not only so, but we, what's the word? Glory. In what? Tribulations. <laughs> Paul says, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Paul says, tribulation works patience, patience works experience, experience brings hope. What is the starting point for that whole process? <laughs> tribulation. Tribulation. It starts with trial. It starts with difficulty. It starts with problems. So what Paul says here, what should we do when tribulations begin? <laughs> Glory in tribulation. Glory in it. If you're going through a difficulty this morning, if your life is having some uh, something thrown into it that you weren't expecting, or you have to deal with some difficulty, please hear me this morning. That is the blessing of God to make you what he wants you to be. Amen. And Paul says, glory in it. Glory in it. Here's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory. Here he says it again. Here I, I will gl- rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And if I could put that on my words this morning, I believe what Paul is saying is, I am satisfied if God brings trials into my life, because through those trials, I will experience the power of Jesus Christ in a way I would never experience had the trial not come. You know what that's going to take, folks? That's going to take a mature believer. (laughs) It's going to be somebody who understands God the way God presents himself in the word of God. One of the greatest blessings God will bring into your life is trial. You say, I don't think trial is a blessing. Then you're contradicting the entire word of God with what you think. (laughs) Paul says, I glory in it. 
I glory in tribulation. I glory in infirmities. Because through those trials, God shows me how much he loves me. He's willing to bring that trial into my life. Through those trials, God can mature me and grow me and strengthen me and make me more like his son. And so you know what you do? You just say when trial comes, praise God for the trial. Praise God for the trial. Now, you're not going to be able to do that unless you're close enough to him to make that happen. But that's what the word of God says. I'm sure none of us want to go through trial. If your flesh were speaking this morning, I'm sure your flesh would say, I don't want any part of it. I'm not excited about it. I'm not happy about it. I don't want to do it. You see, folks, these earthly emotions, these fleshly emotions you have uh, prevent you from being able to glory in tribulation. Your human emotions don't let that happen. But I want to tell you something this morning. If you're going through a trial right now, or if one comes to you in 2024, please realize in the midst of that trial, God has blessed you by bringing that thing into your life. And if you'll let him do it, he'll make you just like what he wants you to be through that trial, if you'll let him do it. Now, if you kick and scream and fight every step of the way, God can't do his work. But if you say, Lord, I'm all yours. I surrender to whatever you want to do in my life. Lord, if you want to bring trial into my life, I'm willing to take that trial if you'll make me more like you. If you'll do that, God can use that trial in a way that will make you more like him. You'll come out of that thing more like Jesus Christ than you were when you went into it. How do I do that? Well, Sabak of the Broken Record. Get into the book. Get into the book. If you want to know how to handle trial, folks, don't go to the psychologist and don't go to the educator and don't go to the philosopher and don't go to the politician. Go to the book. Go to the book. Go to the book. There are principles in the Word of God that will tell you exactly how to go through what you're going through right now. You'll be amazed. It's almost like God will put your name over it. <laughs> As you read through the word of God. And as you do that, God's going to teach you those principles. He's going to say, okay, here's what you need to do when this comes. Here's what you need to do when this comes. Here's how, what your attitude needs to be when this shows up. And God will teach you principles and show you things that will take you through that trial exactly how he wants you to go through it. And by the way, why are we doing scripture writing? Because sometimes you won't be able to recall that stuff in your own mind. Unless you've worked on putting it into your mind. <laughs> So you know what you do? You read that book and you meditate that book and you write that scripture. And as you do that, God plants that stuff in your head. And when the trial comes, you can have a reference point to go back to. The Rolodex goes through. (laughs) Ah, there's the verse I needed. God brings it to your mind. Folks, get in the book. (laughs) Get in the book. Ground yourself in the principles of the word of God. So when those problems come, you can rest in the foundation God has given you. You'll know that he loves you. You won't doubt that. And you'll also know that whatever he brings into your life, whatever he brings into your life, it's his love being shown to you. Even through that. See, I've got a lot of trial in my life. God loves you that much. God loves you that much. I've got some things in my life that are overwhelming. God loves you that much. That he brought that thing into your life because he can use that thing to make you more like Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what to do in the midst of trial? I'm telling myself the same thing. Trust his goodness and know that he loves you and know that everything that he brings into your life is for your own good. No matter what it is. And then allow what he brings into your life to do his work in you so that you come out of that trial more like Jesus Christ than you were when you went in. And if that happens... And what Paul says here in Romans chapter 5 will be a process of your life. From that trial, you'll have patience. From that trial, you'll have experience. And from that trial, you'll have hope. And you'll never be ashamed. 
of the hope God gives you to the trial that he brings into your life. Folks, get into the book. 2024, get into the book. If you hear nothing else from the last 45 minutes, hear these three words. Four words. Get into the Four words. <laughs> get into the book. And allow God to work through you through the principles of the Word of God. Amen.